Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. You have a Speaker of the House right now that is obfuscating his responsibility um, on the behalf of the people of, of this country. It's just not sustainable for local economies uh, to, to handle this crisis, and Congress has to do its job. Mayors overwhelmed by the migrant crisis are calling on D.C. for help. It's Friday, January 19th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we'll hear from the mayor of Chicago as 15,000 migrants in the city that I live in still don't have permanent housing. And when the Kansas City Chiefs head to Buffalo Sunday, I'm sure they'll get a warm welcome from the Bills Mafia. But with another snowy showdown in the forecast, do the Western New Yorkers have the home field advantage? Well, in this case, I'm not sure how much, because Kansas City just played in the freezing cold game the, the week prior. But I can tell you when Miami comes to town, it's always exciting to know that this team that hangs out in South Beach all year has to come up to our neck of the woods and deal with, you know, our environment. But first, Iowa's over, and it's New Hampshire's time to shine. Former President Trump has been splitting his time this week between rallies there and a federal courthouse in Manhattan for one of his many legal cases. That has not slowed his progress toward securing the bid for the Republican presidential nomination. And meanwhile, for the Democrats, President Biden's foreign policy agenda, including aid to Ukraine and Israel, hinges on whether he can get Congress to agree to a deal on immigration, possibly in the next week. Our Friday Politics Roundtable had plenty to discuss. Peter O'Dowd and Celeste Headley were joined this time by ABC's Rick Klein and Francesca Chambers of USA Today, who called in from New Hampshire. So, Francesca, for the GOP nomination in New Hampshire, where you are... Do you think independent voters could be the deciding votes there? Independent voters will very much be a factor in this primary come Tuesday. That is a category that Nikki Haley has been targeting as she tries to defeat Donald Trump in the state so that everyone understands how this works in New Hampshire. Undeclared voters, which make up the largest group of voters in the state, can come in on Tuesday and they can register there on site to become a Republican to vote in the Republican primary. Then on their way out, they can re-declare themselves independents or unaffiliated voters on their way out of the of the primary. So there are a number of people at events throughout the state that I've been to over the last couple of days who are showing up at Haley rallies saying that they are in that category and that's what they plan to do in order to be able to vote for her in order to stop Trump. Will it help her, Francesca? Whether or not she can make up the difference is perhaps another question if it's enough. <sighs> In the Suffolk right. Daily tracking poll today, she was down 17 points to Donald Trump still, and mm. there's only four days left for her to make up that gap. 
Well, so, um, speaking of Donald Trump, sorry, Celeste, there, um, on Fox News last night, he was asked what his closing argument uh, to New Hampshire voters would be. And his, his answer was, make America great again. But then he pivoted to the legal fight to keep his name on the ballot in Colorado and Maine and his push for presidential immunity, despite having been charged with election interference. Let's listen. If you take immunity away from the president, so important, you will have you will have a president that's not going to be able to do anything because when he leaves office... The opposing party president, if it's the opposing party, will indict the president. And on CNN, uh, Nikki Haley said no one is above the law and she would only pardon Trump if he's convicted. You know, when you talk about a pardon, someone's already been found guilty. But for me, the last thing we need is an 80 year old president sitting in jail because that's just going to further divide our country. So, Rick, uh, what will the takeaway be in New Hampshire if Trump wins on Tuesday? If Trump wins on Tuesday in decisive fashion, he is uh, he is almost certain to win the nomination. I really don't think that's an overstatement. We've never had an open primary uh, uh, where where a candidate won Iowa and New Hampshire and didn't win the nomination. Obviously, the strength that he showed in Iowa last week was 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 staggering. He's now only down to three candidates. Haley, if she is going to make a, ca- a campaign. Uh, of this. She's going to have to win somewhere. New Hampshire is her best opportunity by far. I noted that she's got the endorsement of the governor of New Hampshire. Uh, Francesca and I saw him uh, with her just the other day, uh, and and he is downgrading expectations, saying a strong second. I don't think that's going to be good enough for her. Uh, there, there really aren't a lot of favorable states after that. And bottom line is that Republicans appear willing to and, and likely to continue to embrace Donald Trump. And, and if you don't win one of these early states, Iowa and New Hampshire are the best opportunities. I don't know how DeSantis or Haley gets to, gets to stop that once the campaign goes national. Okay, so Francesca Haley, again, a Southern-born daughter of Indian immigrants, struggled yet again on a question about race. CNN host Jake Tapper pressed her about saying the U.S. has never been a racist country. But when you look, it said all men are created equal. I think the intent, the intent was to do the right thing. Uh, She had the stage to herself. It was a town hall last night because she refused to debate. What are you hearing about her campaign and some of the responses she's had that have been controversial? In talking to voters about both what she said in the prior interview, which took place on Fox, as well as what she said in the town hall in New Hampshire about the Civil War, where she did not mention slavery as a cause of the Civil War, voters are concerned about it, including those independents that we just talked about. Almost every voter who I have asked about her comments over the last couple of days has said that th- th- this is an issue for her, uh, these remarks. Now, they are saying that, of course, politicians say things that they regret or stumble on issues all the time, but they are certainly concerned that these stumbles for her in the final days could hurt her support in the state heading into Tuesday. So those were the Republicans. Let's talk about President Biden. It kind of seems his campaign engines are revving up a little bit. Here he is yesterday in North Carolina. Bring an opportunity to hope to people and communities across this country. Let me give you one example of bringing high speed internet to every person. And he was talking about broadband expansion there for local communities. So next week, he and uh, his vice president, Kamala Harris, and their spouses are going to be campaigning together for the first time since the campaign officially began last April. Rick, what do you think? I mean, uh, I've heard some people say that the campaign has been kind of slow to get off the ground. Do you see it that way? 
There's no question they've been slow to get off the ground. And I think they're avoiding the, um, the, the, the state of New Hampshire entirely, where there are other candidates running against him. He is not on the ballot. It's not for delegates. But his write-in campaign, I think, is going to be a key early indication in this primary process of where his support is in the Democratic Party. He's going to be the Democratic nominee. That's very clear. But the way that they've played this strategically and combined with the issues that are colliding on this White House, including uh, Israel, uh, are, are making for some tough sledding. And I think people are going to be closely watching how he squares up. He is, for all intents and purposes, already running against Donald Trump. But he does have primaries that, have, that he has to get through to at least gauge where the electorate in the Democratic Party is. So Biden and Harris are doing a multi-state reproductive freedoms tour, marking the 51st anniversary of the Roe v. Wade abortion rights decision. That was, of course, overturned by the Supreme Court two years ago. I wonder, how crucial do you think is the issue of abortion to the Biden campaign? I think it's huge for Biden. I think I think between democracy and the Dobbs ruling, you're going to see a lot of messaging that hone in, hone in on these things. And we have seen now in election after election that voters care deeply about abortion rights. And when they've had the opportunity to weigh in, they do so. Uh, and, it, and right now it's an issue that Republicans are still divided on. Uh, Donald Trump has a lot that he has to answer for, as having named those justices that overturned Roe v. Wade. And we haven't seen any signs yet that the anger over the ramifications and the, uh, the, the outcome of that Supreme Court ruling has, has abated. If anything, it's, it seems stronger in some pockets of the country. Well, Francesca, let's touch, touch on another issue that um, was sure to be big in the upcoming election, and that is immigration. Where do you think Congress will come down on that issue, plus aid to Ukraine uh, in the next week? Because voters say immigration is concerned. Allies say Ukraine aid is critical. Biden seems to be on the brink of a deal with Senate Republicans to get both. Immigration has been a critical issue out here on the campaign trail, particularly among Republican voters. A big debate going on over that in the GOP primary right now. When it comes to what Biden might be able to achieve with Congress, a key difficulty he faces, though, is that even if Republicans in the Senate and Democrats in the Senate come to some sort of an agreement over immigration in order to pass his national security package, it will run into hurdles, deep hurdles potentially, in the House of Representatives, where Republicans are saying that without major concessions on immigration from the Biden administration, that they won't pass either that uh, aid to Israel in that package, at least, or the aid to Ukraine. Now, whether or not they could potentially decouple them, that's something that's been talked about all along, hasn't happened. Uh, So right now, it looks as if he's going to have to strike a deal, some sort of a deal with the House Republicans. Speaker Mike Johnson, he's in a tough spot right now. Mm -hmm. A a lot of the Republicans in the House of Representatives, the more conservative members, do not want to see additional aid to Ukraine. And so he's going to have to get major concessions from Biden on immigration in order for that to pass. And and so, Rick, do you think we, there might be aid for Israel coming out of Congress at this point? Biden spoke with the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu for the first time in a month. Um, but yesterday, the, Israel's Prime Minister publicly rejected the U.S. stated goal of a state for Palestinians. What do you think? Yeah, and we just saw the Senate reject an effort to try to tie further aid to conditions on the Israelis. Uh, the de- it was led by Democrats, including Senator Bernie Sanders. You know, the, the the issue of Israel is in some ways less controversial, but it's but it is in other ways more urgent and uh, and and a bigger and a bigger hurdle. And it's taken a back seat so far to Ukraine. It is going to come right back into the conversation because uh, unlike unlike Ukraine, this is an issue that Democrats are deeply divided on. So it's the president's own party where he may have some of his biggest obstacles. Francesca, you mentioned the House Speaker Mike Johnson and the tough road he's got ahead of him. We haven't talked about this yet. Um, Democrats helped him get a short 
uh, short-term funding bill passed last night. It averted a government shutdown later this evening. On C-SPAN this morning, a member of the Conservative Freedom Caucus, Matt Rosendale of Montana, was asked um, if Speaker Johnson should be worried about his job because he worked with Democrats. I think that there are those who would uh, take every action necessary, uh, but I'm not in that camp yet. Does it surprise you that um, Mike Johnson hasn't gotten more flack or lost his job because he did the very thing that um, Speaker McCarthy did? Worked with Democrats. Well, his camp has argued so far that his hands were sort of tied. Speaker McCarthy made previous deals with the Biden administration and with other members of Congress that they've been sticking to, including on those spending caps. So they've kicked the can down the road now to March. It buys them some more time to try and, and come up with a spending deal and, and come up with a pathway forward. Uh, but but so far, you know, he's taken, as you noted, some scrutiny from conservatives and, and some of them are very, very upset, but we have not seen the same sort of effort to oust him yet. So, Rick, what are you watching for as we maybe try to find a permanent solution to, to a government shutdown? Well, I, look, there's no way that Mike Johnson can govern without Democrats at the table. And will Republicans stomach that? The best thing he has going for them is that as much as Republicans don't want that to happen, they don't want to go through what they just did a few months ago uh, with, uh, with an ousted speaker in the chaos that followed going on weeks without a speaker. So Mike Johnson benefits from this situation that he's in, but it is a really untenable one because I don't see any way that you can govern this majority, particularly with the narrowness of it and the, and the absences in Congress yeah. without relying on Democrats. And that's just going to be, it's been a non-starter in the past. Yeah. Rick Klein is political director for ABC News and Francesca Chambers is White House correspondent for USA Today. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. We're going to stay with immigration policy and take a look at what's happening in Chicago. After the break, Peter speaks with the mayor, Brandon Johnson. The city was already overwhelmed even before temperatures plunged below zero this week. And now the mayor is calling on the feds for relief. Stick around. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR, NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. It is well below freezing in Chicago in shelters that keep thousands of people out of the cold are at their breaking point. Around 15,000 migrants are living in the city without permanent homes. And that is a big issue facing Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson, who joined a conference of mayors this week in Washington, D.C., calling for more federal assistance on immigration. We have Mayor Johnson on the line now. Mayor, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me and Happy New Year. 
and you too, thousands of unhoused people were already in Chicago hunkering down for what's been a pretty tough winter recently. Now you also have thousands more who've crossed the border. They were sent north by the governor of Texas. Just how overwhelmed are your shelters? Well, we have 27 shelters that have stood up um, since taking office, 15,000 people um, that we are uh, providing emergency shelter for uh, migrants, asylum seekers. Uh, 5,000 children are in our Chicago public schools. We're providing health screenings, vaccinations, um, working through the work authorization process um, to, to, to help these families um, have an opportunity to have a sustainable life uh, here in Chicago or, or in America. Um, you know, and, you know, we are, you know, working to resettle families. Uh, 10,000 families have been resettled uh, since the beginning of this mission. Um, you know, as you've indicated, you know, the, the, the raggedy and reckless behavior of, of Governor Abbott has created a great deal of chaos. Um, I've worked very hard to provide some structure and some, some um, you know, coordination around this, this mission. Um, but we have this international uh, federal crisis um, that really requires a coordinated federal response, but um, local municipalities are essentially being uh, pushed to 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 subsidize this 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 mission, and it's not sustainable. Right. And if Congress so doesn't act, uh, this is going to get very hard. We'll get to the federal response in just a moment, but now the responsibility mm-hmm. is at your doorstep, whether you like it or not. I understand there's a 60-day limit on shelter stays for migrants. You've delayed the deadline for folks to leave until February 1st just because it's so cold outside. But what happens after that? Where will people go? Well, look, this is the ongoing challenge that we have. You know, as long as we have someone at the border, uh, the, uh, Governor Abbott, um, who is intentionally sending migrants to democrat- democratically ran cities, and quite frankly, cities that are led by people of color and particularly black leaders, um, that this is going to be an ongoing challenge. What I've, I've done over the course of my first eight months in office, again, we are sheltering 15,000 people. We're educating 5,000 children. 53% of them are third grade or younger. And we're doing everything that we can to coordinate with uh, the faith community, mutual aid support, the philanthropic community, our unity initiative in which our faith community has stepped up to help support you know, this mission. Um, but this is not, um, local municipalities are not designed to carry out this mission. Now I've done well, everything one in of, my power that I can do uh, to do just yeah. that, like I said, with 27 shelters, while also dedicating a quarter of a billion dollars uh, to our currently unhoused uh, families. I did that in my first budget. So we are still moving to make sure we address the immediate uh, crisis of those who are unhoused in Chicago, while also responding to this, um, this international crisis. You mentioned the children. As you well know, a five-year-old boy died last month at a shelter that uh, came under some pretty intense scrutiny because um, it was quite unsanitary, apparently. There were cockroach infestations, leaking sewage. People were getting sick. There wasn't enough food or bathrooms. How are you fixing that problem? Well, as when I took office, the, the, the landing zone were police districts, which was untenable, and it was you know, obviously very much um, very difficult for law enforcement to do its job. And there were challenges there. I mean, there were ambulatory runs that were taking place there. People were, um, were, were, were sick. And in, in many instances, when families arrived to the city of Chicago, um, they are coming with very little um, resources, quite obviously. And uh, they were coming in really, really poor health conditions. Every single issue that has been raised with all of our um, uh, shelters, we've addressed them. And, uh, you know, as I've said before, you know, the, the death of this uh, little boy um, that I've continue to offer my condolences to the family. Um, it has been well documented. 
you know, that the conditions that have been raised at this facility, um, um, there's no link between those conditions that we've addressed um, and this, this boy's death. So I just wanted to be very clear that we are dealing with this crisis because it's being caused by uh, the, the failure of Congress to actually act and do its job. What we so need what's your message to Congress? Reform. Because you have lawmakers right now gathering, essentially, as we speak, trying to make significant policy changes. What's your yeah, message well, here in Washington? Thank you. I'm here in D.C. now, and it's just not just me. Thank you for that question. It's mayors all over this country that are coming together, whether they are impacted like Chicago or not. The, the Congress has to do its job. The, the president of the United States have put forth um, you know, a, 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 a budget or a policy that could address this, this, this crisis and they actually have to act. Unfortunately, uh, you have a Speaker of the House right now that is obfuscating his responsibility um, on the behalf of the people of, of this country. It's just yeah. not sustainable for local economies uh, to, to handle this crisis and Congress yeah. has to do its job. Brandon Johnson is the mayor of Chicago. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Coming up next, sure, there are diehard football fans everywhere. But have you been to Buffalo? After the break, Peter talks to the Bills fan of the year ahead of the playoff game Sunday. Put on your Zubas, and we'll be right back. The news can feel incredibly overwhelming. For a breath of much-needed fresh air, head to NPR.org's culture section. From the buzzy movies, tiny desk, and artists that everyone seems to know about, type in NPR.org for the latest and greatest in the pop culture universe. Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. For the second time in a week, the Buffalo Bills are asking their fans to bail them out. Another snowstorm is heading for upstate New York, and the team is once again offering fans 20 bucks an hour to shovel snow out of the stadium before Sunday's playoff game against the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, if it sounds like deja vu, that's because the same thing happened on Monday. A crew of hardcore fans helped dig out Highmark Stadium ahead of a playoff game that was delayed a day because it was covered with nearly two feet of snow, which makes us think the Bills, holy cow, they have some hardcore fans, and one of them is Del Reed. He was named the Bills Fan of the Year this season, and we have the pleasure of speaking with him now. Del, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on. So let's start with Monday's game against the Steelers. Even though all those fans had come to the stadium, helped shovel out the snow, a lot of the seats in the aisles were still covered with it. What was that game like? It must have been wild. <laughs> it was It was wild. Thankfully, our seats were 
pretty shoveled out. Not ideal, but we had somewhere to put our butts. Honestly, people were tweeting even yesterday how uh, shovelers are being invited back to help out. And some people were saying, can you please just leave the snow under our seats so we can throw them up in the air for celebrations again? Because that was really fun. So you've got more snow in the forecast. Uh, Game temps are going to be in the 20s. How do you gird yourself to sit through weather like that? It's funny. This is going to sound, you know, especially for listeners who maybe don't live in Buffalo, it's not a big deal. We're so used to it. We're used to 20 degree and (laughs) far below. You just buy the right layers and you've had those right layers for years. I'm not too concerned about it. Well, as far as the football goes, how much of a home field advantage does that give the Bills? Well, in this case, I'm not sure how much because Kansas City just played in the freezing cold game the, the week prior. But I can tell you when Miami comes to town, it's always exciting to know that this team that hangs out in South Beach all year has to come up to our neck of the woods and deal with, you know, our environment. All right. Well, uh, forgive me for telling you something that you're very well aware of. The last time the Bills <laughs> won a Super Bowl, <laughs> sorry, was never. Uh, and you still got a really uh, a slate of really good teams to get through if you want to make it that far. Is this your year? I'd like to hope so. I'd like to believe so. If you believe in destiny, there's definitely a narrative being written here. You know, you go back six weeks and the team was six and six and people were calling for the coach's job. Imagine, I remember telling people, just wait and see how the season ends. Because every year it feels like somebody wins a Super Bowl or a World Series and you hear the announcer saying, Just two months ago, people were calling for this coach's job, and now he's a champion. That stuff happens. And so maybe it's our turn to live through that story. Yeah, well, uh, you were named, as I said, Bill's Fan of the Year. I can understand why, Uh, which means, by the way, that you're up for the honor of NFL Fan of the Year. Why do you love this team so much? I always describe the Buffalo Bills as being the extra family member in every household in western New York. It's an honor to be the Bills fan of the year this year, but honestly, every game, there's 73,000 other people as just as deserving as I am, and that's only just the people in the stadium. A lot of people think that there's nothing to do in Buffalo because the Buffalo fans are so obsessed with the team, they think, oh, that must be all there is to do. No, there's a lot to do in Buffalo. We just really love our team. They are part of our community, and they're kind of our face to the rest of the country and the world. Del Reed braving the snow and the freezing temperatures for Sunday's playoff game against Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Good luck, Del. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This is a, always a stressful game to, when these two teams line up, but we are, we're ready for it here. Bills fan Del Reed, for what it's worth, his team's left tackle, Deion Dawkins, agrees. Here he is on ESPN. Not to say it's in our favor, but stadium is our favor. You know, Stadium is us. That helps us. I don't care what nobody says. This is the most dopest feeling I've ever had. Like, we've, like, we're having two back to back playoff games home. Like, come on now. Like, we get to leave and go eat wings. It's also time for us to leave and go eat wings. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, James Mastro Marino, and Gabrielle Healy. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. 
We hope you have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. The world of podcasts can feel overwhelming. We'll let you in on the easiest way to find your next favorite show. Head to npr.org slash podcast. From politics to pop culture to music and everything in between, you'll find a selection of shows that'll make you a super fan in no time. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? Money. Power. Tacos. White collar crime. Green parties. Black reparations. More of the perspectives that make your world a more vibrant place. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts.